Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we are going to do a follow-up episode from our interview with Adam Davidson last week. This is going to be great. I loved Adam. Yes, we totally clicked. Uh, Definitely, definitely a compatriot fighting the good fight. And we've already gotten a lot of, you know, it's, we're recording this only the day after that episode went live and I'm already getting a lot of good feedback. People mm-hmm. really liked it. So, uh, it, and it went by so fast. There were a lot of things I think we both wanted to get to, but there just wasn't time to do it. And, uh, you know, we wanted to pull out some of the points from the book, the passion economy that he wrote and drill into those a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. So Rochelle's got the master list. You want to <laughs> start course. us off with... With number one? Yeah, his first point is to pursue intimacy at scale. Hmm, what does that mean? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I mean, well, and I, I find, I don't know about you, Jonathan, but sometimes I struggle a little bit with the scale idea in our kinds of businesses, you know, because scale can mean um, that we're going to do courses where we can scale over many people. It's moving from working one-to-one to to working, you know, one-to-many. But in in the book, he talks more about it in terms of traditional businesses where you have a product. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you think of this? Well, in our world, right. So, like, I'm super-duper not in the physical product world, but in our sort of space, so, like, you know, whatever you want to call it, expertise businesses or like an authority space. Uh, When I hear intimacy at scale, I immediately think podcasting. And Mm. right, it's not really what he's talking about, but that's like how it clicks for me because it's it creates intimacy at scale. It has this weird effect, um, uh, this mesmerizing effect on people. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, it's scientifically, it's been studied at least. I don't know how scientific it is, but it's been studied by scientists. Uh, and as far back as the 60s, it's called parasocial relationships. And they studied uh, radio and TV personalities back then and sports stars and that sort of thing. And and the effects that it would have on people who watch them regularly or listen to them regularly. And it creates this feeling like they know you. And yeah. and it's it scales like crazy. And I don't, you know, I think... I think the scale word is a little bit loaded because, you know, like Silicon Valley style scale and mass market. It's not, I don't, I'm sure Adam's not, I know he's not talking about mass market and that's not what we're talking about either. But really, I think it's about scaling beyond the, the one-to-one traditional human intimacy kind of thing where it's like Mm -hmm. two people having dinner and like talking about, you know, like really getting into it. And podcasting is the first thing that jumps to mind because it has this sort of, I call it an asymmetric intimacy. It's like, it's like one side feels like they absolutely know this other person. And, uh, and then the other side, you know, doesn't, it's like asymmetric, uh, which leads me to the mailing list. Email. That's where, that's where I was going. Yeah. Because that's, it's another way to create that, that one-to-one feeling, even though it's one-to-many, but it's an art form Mm -hmm. to do it really well. Right. And, and the beauty of email, I've talk, we've talked about this plenty of times, but the beauty of email is that when you first send one, it's broadcast. So you can send an email to 12,000 people with the click of a button. But, you know, some portion of those people can reply and turn it into a one-on-one conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not asymmetric, but it's asynchronous, meaning that you can, 
you know, when, you know, I, I send out a blast to 12,000 people, I get back maybe, you know, 10 to 100 emails, depending on, you know, if I pressed a button or not. And then I can potentially engage with individuals. If they're all saying the same thing back to me, I'll just write a new email the next day that addresses all of the, the, the whatever, I, you know, maybe I screwed something mm-hmm. up or maybe I left something out and everybody's confused. Uh, but you can, you can, it's uh, email by its very nature can pivot from this broadcast scale thing into this one-on-one when it comes back to you. It's amazing. It's the coolest thing ever. Well, you know, there's there's a thing I'd like to talk about with this idea of the word intimacy, and maybe it ties to a later point we're going to talk about, about stories. But think about email, like, let's say Seth Godin, right? Mm-hmm. So I get his daily email. Um, I, I wouldn't call it, I mean, there's a level of intimacy. I wouldn't necessarily call it intimate. He's giving me ideas, and he's focusing them on things, and it's mm-hmm. interesting, and I'm probably never going to unsubscribe because I really enjoy it. But then I compare that to someone, Marie Forleo is maybe not the best example, but she's one a lot of people have heard of, where it's deeply intimate, right? I mean, she talks about things about her life and those kinds of things. So like, where do we deal with this intimacy? Like, how much intimacy is the right intimacy, Mm -hmm. right? And what kinds of intimacy are the right balance? Right. Yeah. So uh, to use your example, I think Seth is very standoffish. He he intentionally doesn't talk about it. Like, do you even know if he has kids? Do you even know if he... Yeah, you wouldn't know. Uh, he just does not talk about that stuff. And, you know, and he's got to... You know, he's like, that's that's their life to share. It's not, you know, it's not my thing. And I'm like, okay. And then you get someone on, on the other end of the spectrum, like Scott Galloway, who has reason to bring up periodically things like, you know, that his kids still kiss him even though they're adults and that you know, like the worst thing that ever happened to him was when his mother passed away. And like, he gets into it. And, you know, he's like a, he's like a marketing professor at NYU. Like, it's not necessary for him to get into that. But, he, but it makes sense. Like, he makes it make sense. Um, speaking for myself, I, I, this is just <laughs> out of laziness. Since I write so many emails, I try to write them about something that happened to me that day. So I know I'm not repeating myself. So it ends up, a lot of a lot of personal stories will seep their way in. It's like, oh, you know, like everybody on my list knows about the squirrels in the garage and the new roof and the dripping hose out front and like how crazy the kids are and all of that stuff. So, you know, is is any of those the right way? I don't think so. I think it it's about finding a level that that is comfortable for you and makes sense for your overall goal of the mailing list in this case. Like, what's the goal of the mailing list? And then how much of your personality and your personal life are you going to bring into it to support that goal? It's not like, it's not like, I've, I wouldn't Well, this is where someone... we get it brand. I mean, this okay. is where we really get it brand, right? Because, um, you know, your brand may, can be more or less intimate than another brand. And it's got to be a combination of you and what you want to talk about mm-hmm. and how you want to transform your audience, right? How you're moving them down the, the line of transformations. Right. It's like, yeah. I, I don't feel like there's like one right level of intimacy, but it's really interesting if you, you know, line up any 20 people whose emails you, you read, you'll see varying degrees of it. Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. Like I talked to a lot of people 
you know, in coaching, a lot of people are just thoroughly allergic to the idea. Like, no, you know, because a lot of engineer types and they're like, first of all, who cares? Second of all, no, you know, like <laughs> that's private. It's like, I, I'm like, fine, do whatever you want. Like find something, find a way to be effective at what you're trying to do. Uh, and the, the intimacy, how the intimacy scale is a tool in the toolbox. You know, if, if you can use it to help, um, people trust you more and therefore take your advice and therefore take action, then maybe you want to use that tool. If, if you don't, I mean, I don't really think of it that, that coldly. I just think like, well, this is the way I write. So like it, or, you know, right. love it or leave it. But for people that are, um, especially when you're retooling your brand and you're first starting to really, you know, write and publish, um, this becomes, an exercise, right? As you go through this process of deciding, what are you going to write about? Are you going to write about your own experiences? How often are you going to do that? But I think for the engineers in the group, and this is not something that that Adam talked about in the book, but I would say you still have to show your humanity, whether that's, you know, intimacy about, you know, your personal life, but you want to be a human, Mm-hmm. Right. We don't follow bots, at least here's, not intentionally. Yeah. Here's the here's the thing that I see people do that I think is definitely a mistake, which is they pretend they're bigger than they are. They act mm-hmm. like it, they say we when it's really just them. And they try to put on this like fake corporate BS language. Like yes. To me, that is always wrong. There's never a good there's never a right time to do that. You're just being fake. Yeah. And it's, you know, to be fair, it's usually people who've just come out of a job job, mm-hmm. right, out of corporate, and they feel like, all right, my clients are going to be companies like the one I came from, and this is what they understand. Mm-hmm. And then once you've been doing it for a while, you're like, oh, oh, yeah, I don't want to sound like that. And it's hard. I want to sound like me. Yeah. Not only is it, is. it it's ineffective, but it's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ugh, I hate that. Well, it's a process. I agree. I did it, too. Yeah. Cool. So where does that leave us on the list? I think we're... Uh, yeah, I think, I think we, we beat that one. Um, I, I love this next one. It's only create value that can't be easily copied. Yes. Oh, hello? Yes. <laughs> I love this. This feels like TBOA, you know, core, core uh, value. It's... We don't want to look like anybody else, much less everybody else. And so this comes down to, I think of it as brand, you may think of it in another way, but I think of it as how do you express um, in ways that are going to create uh, a bond with your potential clients um, and that will result in being able to monetize your expertise. But how can you express those talents and passions in a way that nobody else is doing? Because you might have 20 people or heck, if you're a graphic designer, over a million people in, in, you know, in this big thing we call graphic design. But how do you become one of that million instead of, you know, 999,000 of them? Mm, Right. So, so at a high level, like you're talking about it at a high level, like you don't want to buy a copy of the Mona Lisa. You want to buy the Mona Lisa. If you want, you know what I mean? If yeah, you're, if that's right. what you're looking for, it's not the same thing. Like the provenance is gone. If you buy a copy, then you don't get to be part of the story of the the stream of interesting things that has happened to that particular painting over the, its lifespan. You mm-hmm. Like you don't get any of that. You don't, you're not in on that unless you spend whatever it is, a hundred million dollars or more to get that painting. So a copy 
isn't the same thing. You're not buying the same thing. So I look at it as, so to, to translate that into what you were just talking about, Rochelle, it's like, if somebody wants to hire Rochelle, then no other branding consultant will do, right? Because they're connected with you. They trust you. They don't trust anybody else. They don't know them. They don't, you know, whatever it is, you've, you've established this um, meaningful difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's so that's at a high level you know it's sort of like the um the overall business level or the brand level but i i i think there's another very important way to look at it which is the tactical level like if you're making your money from selling mp3s you're in trouble like if that's if that's how you're going to make your living by selling mp3s you know ex-musician speaking here <laughs> then napster's going to come along and destroy your business overnight that's that can't the thing I, so we're talking about physically physically copying a digital thing it's kind of a weird thing to say but just physically ripping you off mm-hmm. so if you're in a knowledge space so if, if the thing if what you're producing is knowledge and expertise and insight and like brain things and you're sending them out over the internet in some digital format you know you don't want to put yourself in a position where you're revenue can be negatively impacted by someone who happens to have a computer and can copy and paste and like forward yeah. an email or something like that. So I, I get this question all the time from people because um, I'm an advocate of sharing, 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 sharing as much as you possibly can. Tell all your secrets, share with everybody. And then you get the inevitable, but what if everyone copies me? And I say, well, good, because that means you're doing something right because they see the value in it. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to worry about them because they're not in, they're demonstrating by their behavior that they don't innovate. So as long as you don't stop innovating, they'll always be behind you. And this sometimes is cold comfort to people because they're like, they're like, <laughs> yeah, but I do want to stop innovating. And I just want to make money from that one course I did. But somebody ripped it off and they're selling it, you know, or, or they're distributing it on BitTorrent. I'm like, make a new one or make a different one or do a workshop. Nobody can copy a workshop where you show up. Right. So, you know, it, uh, there's a, a million things we could talk about here, but I, I like that you took it from like a high level, like cop, you know, no one, you know, you're unique and you're recognized as unique. You're the go-to person for a particular thing. And then also at a low level, you sh- you're going to want to have things to sell that are really hard to rip off, like to, with a, with a copy paste operation. Yeah. And I mean, we've talked a lot on the show about positioning and that's really what we're talking about is that you're positioning yourself, even if you're new to this and you're maybe a little uncomfortable saying that you're the best at X, what you do is you incorporate elements of what you do to distinguish yourself from the other people in your space. And it's, you know, I've said this before, it's a process, right? I mean, you, you, you put your, you plant your flag on the hill that you want to claim and you know over time the flag may move a little bit but for the most part it stays it stays pretty secure and then that allows you to then create value inside your business whether that's courses whether it's consulting coaching um you know web design whatever those are you find ways to do things that even if somebody else copies it it doesn't hurt you it's like well so what they don't they, they don't get me it's right. not the same without me. And exactly. that's that's what your audience is saying. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I want people to copy me. That's part of the mission. Do, do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like when people use like words that, that we've coined 
right? Mm. I mean, it's it's exciting to hear somebody who say your words back to you, like, oh yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> not to me. That's not copying. That's you know, that's speaking the language. Right. Yeah. Cool. I mean, would I be pissed if somebody had like you know was selling one of my eBooks online? Yeah, but whatever. Uh, yeah. You know, whatever. Yeah. I mean that that happened with when I had published like traditionally published books in the software space, O'Reilly, I, I did three or four books for O'Reilly and people, you could find PDFs of them for like for free for download. It's like, whatever. I just, yeah, they do that with a lot matter. of stuff. I, I remember one time I found somebody had cloned my Twitter account and they were <laughs> operating as me. And I'm like, seriously, like it just made me so mad on so many levels. And it wasn't really about copying. It was just that somebody would think that that was me. And so I wrote to Twitter and complained and they didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably still out there. It was a couple of years ago. I just I just tuned it out. It was like, it just doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Although you have quite a few followers. You could say, hey, everybody, could you all go report that account for me? As you can see, they're just completely <laughs> copying me. Yeah. Do, do it before the other account does it to you. <laughs> that's that is one thing. Well, we don't need to get on that. Right yeah, now. that's a, a whole other thing. Yeah. Okay, so that brings us to number three. Number well, three. Jonathan, I don't know if you're going to agree with this one. Yeah. Um, it's the price you charge should match the value you provide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we talked about this on the show. Um, but it bears repeating that price determines cost, not the other way around, which is the exact opposite of what everybody thinks. Mm-hmm. So normally people, sellers, especially amateur sellers, and I include myself, my a younger version of myself in that group, thinks like, oh, well, how hard, for the, how hard will this be for me to do? How much time will it take me to do? Mm-hmm. Or how much do I want to make per hour of my time spent working on this, you know, websites or whatever I do. And that's, that is your cost. You're thinking about your cost and then you set a price that's higher than the cost and you say, Hey, anybody, is it worth this much to you to, um, do, to get access to this thing that I do on your behalf? You know, is, you know, do you want to pay me $150 an hour to build a FileMaker database for you? And, uh, and even a lot of even a lot of less sophisticated pricers in the mass market world will say, "Oh well, how cheap can we make this pair of sneakers?" or um, or whatever. We'll say, "Okay, uh, they need to be this. They need to be manufactured here. There needs to be uh, this, these kinds of materials." And okay, how much is the you know like make the list of the materials? How much does each one cost? How much does it cost to assemble and ship? And all okay, all of our costs. Um, this pair of sneakers is going to cost seventy five hundred dollars a pair. Okay, who wants a $7,500 pair of sneakers? Nobody. Well, maybe not nobody, but <laughs> but the point is, if you, cost does not drive value. So just because you work in a really inefficient or expensive way, unnecessarily expensive, that doesn't add any value, and you've got this really high cost, then your price has to be over your cost. That doesn't mean that anyone cares, right? Yeah. So it's it goes- an internal focus versus external. Right. And so, okay, so how does it work? It works the other way. It works like there's a pain or an opportunity or some sort of problem that somebody has. They're in a struggle. They have this struggling moment when they're, they have this tension. Seth Godin calls it tension. Bob Mesta calls it the struggling moment. But the, I call it a pain. They're having this symptom of discomfort. And it will be worth something to them to make that pain go away. And the faster, the better. So, 
if you know that that pain exists and it's worth $100 to a particular kind of person to make that pain go away, well, then you can charge $50 for something and they will throw money at you. Now your problem is, okay, if I can get $50 to solve this problem, how can I figure out a way to solve it for less than $50? So you're ar- sort of arbitraging the pain. So it's mm-hmm. like, I've got a solution to this pain. And you, Elon Musk, I hear Elon Musk do it all the time. Whatever you think about Musk, he does this all the time. With every, every business that I've seen him launch, he starts with a price point and works backwards. So it's like, like... It's not like a bunch of engineers sitting around dreaming up fun stuff. He's like, no, this car has to be $40,000 or it doesn't make sense. So anything that's going to cause this car to be more than $40,000 is a flat no, hard pass. Figure out how to make this car. Like he thinks of it right up front because he knows there's going to be a market for a Model 3. So same thing with SpaceX. Like the very beginning of SpaceX, he was like, we need to collapse the price of spaceflight. It needs to collapse by a factor of 10. Otherwise, it makes no. This company has no reason to be. It's fascinating. He's the same thing with that crazy neural implant thing he did. He's like, this needs to be an office procedure, and it needs to be affordable. And, you know, he has some price, whatever he thinks affordable is. And, and it's the same thing. It's it's just another example of how value drives price, and value is in the other person. Value is in the buyer's mind. Yeah, that's it's the external part of this that I think you know we really mess up on. Right, because it's it's what your buyer is willing to pay to solve that problem or access that opportunity. Right, it is not what you want to make from it. Yeah, yeah, and I so <laughs> I have to tell this little little story or joke or whatever it is, where people will say to me, um, "Oh, you know, I moved, you know, I I lived in Kentucky and I moved to New York, so I have to raise my hourly rate." Because my cost of living is going up, and they'll say to their customers, "I have to. Uh, sorry, I've got to raise my rate from a hundred dollars an hour to one hundred and seventy-five an hour because I moved to New York City. Sorry about that." And <laughs> right, and I'm like, "Oh, so if you moved to New York to Kentucky, you'd lower your hourly rate by seventy-five dollars, you know?" And they're like, "Yeah." Uh. <laughs> so if your yeah. expenses go down, if you if you remortgage your house, you're going to lower your hourly rate because your expenses went down. Yeah. No, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Cut, cut me off because I'm going to keep going. Well, no, I mean, I was just going to throw this in. Like, even if you come out of a consulting firm like I did before I started my first business, I mean, it, we, everything was by the hour. Like, I didn't know how to think about it any other way. Yeah. Right? You just go, well, yeah, you know, and it, and it was kind of a badge of honors how big your hourly rate was. Right? Yeah, exactly. It like, it's a total pissing contest. Yeah. Well, mine's 375. Exactly. Mine's 425. You know, it's like... Because, you know, it had some weird relationship to your pay, but not direct. So, yeah. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's agree that this has got to be about value, that value is external. And, you know, our job is to find what the clients value so that we know how to price what we're offering. Right. It's I, I put it even simpler. I don't love the word value because I know that people don't, they interpret it very weird, very weirdly has a lot of different meanings to different people. Mm-hmm. I, I boil it down like this. What do they want? Not need, want. They will, People will pay for things they want. So if you find people mm. who you like and you find out what they want and you help them get it, you there is value there. So then all you have to do is figure out how much they'll pay for the thing they want and then create the thing for less cost than the price. So in other words, so that there's a profit margin for both of you. Yeah. And it's like... It's gotten to the point where it's so obvious to me now that it's hard for me to even think about it the other way. And I, 
urge like this, it, but it took me years, like at least four years to be like, oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> it's that, that word want is really powerful. Like if you just think about it yourself mm-hmm. and you say what I want versus what I need. So like what I need is I need new windows in my house. Um, yeah, I but don't you're not wa- going to get them unless you want them. Well, no, wait, wait. I, 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 no, I, I, I disagree in this particular case. I just want to use this as, a, as an analogy. So I need windows on the house because they're leaching um, they're leaching power. I'm spending too much on energy, so I need them. No. I don't. Okay. I don't. I don't want <laughs> to buy them. I would rather go to Italy. I don't want to buy windows. So guess what? I'm not looking for a value on my window. I'm looking for a good, cheap price that has the essential stuff that I need. But if I want something, if I want that trip to Italy, well, I'm happy to spend money on that. All right, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to push back. <laughs> I would. So let's 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 flip it around. Let's say, can you think of something you need but you haven't acted on? The windows. Well, but you're planning to. Uh, well, at some point, I'm putting it off as long as I can. Right, because you don't really want to, and until you want to, you won't buy them. So it's like it's like everybody. Uh, need let's say a smoker i could say i could walk up to somebody and say in a starbucks uh, like it's there's another thing going on here which is you're talking about yourself so imagine well this is what i was trying to get the audience to think about how they buy things so that they can think about how their client buys things it's the need versus want i would argue that you never buy something you don't want because i i can think of things i need but i'm not buying them because i don't want to and you actually just described that exact thing (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, you're, you're right. I guess I don't, I don't want to buy them, or I would have bought them. I just, I just do not want to make it a priority. But I know that I should. Maybe should, that's, oh, that's totally yeah. different, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe that's what it is. Yeah, it's like I should like those sensible shoes for you know that look like this. It'll be comfortable. But I don't want them. I want the high heeled, you know, fancy ones. Right. People buy, don't buy stuff they don't want. Yeah. All right. So I, I could buy that. But this is important, especially because. It's tricky when you're talking about yourself because I might say I need to lose 20 pounds and I might say I want to lose 20 pounds and those are roughly synonymous. But if I go up to somebody in a Starbucks and I say, you need to lose 20 pounds, <laughs> that's really rude. Yeah, you get punched. Right. Or if I go up to someone in a Starbucks and I say, you want to lose 20 pounds, that doesn't even make sense. Mm-hmm. So in a client situation, telling them what they need is rude and telling them what they want doesn't even make sense. Mm-hmm. You need to find out what they want. Yeah. Finding out, there's no, like, telling clients what they need is super obnoxious. It's arrogant. It's arrogant. It's so obnoxious. So, anyway, I'm I, sorry to, 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 like, be jumping <laughs> all over you, but that's a really important point. Well, I hope our audience learns something from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. shall, we, shall we move on to the next yes, one? Yes, please, before I attack again. Okay, that's okay. I I can take it. One co-host's attack. (laughs) So the next one is fewer passionate customers are better than a lot of indifferent ones. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking about this before the show, and I think we both kind of said niching down, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we Mm -hmm. sort of translated his words into into our language. Mm -hmm. What do you think? As long, yes, as long as we're talking about it, if we get into absolute numbers, there's a slight danger here where I... I don't like it when, especially people in the service business, have a whale client. 
So I wouldn't want someone to have like one very passionate client because that's basically just yeah. a job. Yeah. But yes, but the but the larger picture, uh, if you say go after a niche market instead of the mass market, I'm completely and thoroughly on board with that. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what does Seth Godin say? He says, uh, uh, the mass market is people who make average stuff for average people. Yeah, that's not our audience. By yeah. definition, right? It's like the, the middle of the bell curve. So you know, yeah, our audience doesn't want to make average stuff for average people. Our audience wants to make amazing stuff for amazing people. Mm-hmm. And not everyone's amazing by definition. They're at one end of the bell curve. So, so who are your amazing people? Right, exactly. And Adam talks in this book about um, micro niches. And by micro niche, when, when I was first reading the book, I thought, ooh, is that too narrow? But he uses examples. And the one I'm thinking of is the, is the Amish um, that makes Amish farm machinery, mm-hmm. which like sounds like a crazy niche. But the way that Adam described it, it's actually one that can support a business of something like 25 people. So clearly, yeah, th- he's calling that a micro niche because, you know, I guess it is. But the important thing is that there are enough people in that niche that you can make a living doing what you love. It's got to be, you know, big enough so that you can own it and small enough or so that you can achieve everything you want to and then small enough that you can own it. Yep. Yeah, I've been listening to his podcast, which is the same name as the book, The Passion Economy, and he has lots of interviews like this. Uh, The most recent one was with a guy who grew up doing sport fishing. His dad was a competitive sport fisher. And you know, bass fisherman, which apparently is like a, a never. I'm not a fishing guide, but it's apparently a pretty oh, big it's, deal. It's a thing. Oh my god! It, yeah, special boats, special shows. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that all came up in the episode. And so the the kid goes to college or whatever. He decides he does not want to. He he thought he was going to be a sport fisherman, uh, but one day he was out fishing with another guy, not his dad. There he was actually a, competing against his dad in this particular competition, and he saw. The other the adult that was in the boat with him uh, have get a fish on the line and then lose it and lose the fish and then lose his mind, uh, just cursing, <laughs> throwing his gear into the into the water, having a, a, a straight up temper tantrum. And as an eleven year old kid, the dude was like, "I don't think I want to be a sport fisherman if this is the <laughs> if this is the the kind of danger I'm playing with." So he went to college. He got he, he found his way into uh, financial planning. Like perhaps mm-hmm. the most opposite thing you could imagine. Uh, f- ended up doing that. Made long story short, he uh, ended up niching down on sport fishermen, professional bass fishermen who were you know there's a, fa- a fair amount of money flying around. Yeah. Uh, he, he niched down on that. Uh, it took him a couple of years, but he ended up being the financial planner for famous bass fishermen. Uh, and then he wanted to expand the market a little bit. So he expanded out to doing like retirement plans for companies that serve that same industry. So like mm. people who make bass fishing boats, like you said, and other gear and yeah, and he's crushing it. Yeah. And it's just a simple, you know, I have like a list of different types of positioning statements. His is a simple, what I call an A for B. I do thing for target market. I do mm-hmm. financial planning for people in the bass <laughs> fishers <space> or whatever, <laughs> I whatever love the that. right term is. Yeah, yeah. It, there's tons of examples. The brush story from the book, like they make a piece of wood with bristles glued to it, and yeah. it's like big business. Yeah, and it's and and the important thing that to me that emphasis is on that your customers are passionate. 
Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously, we're passionate about what we do, but that our clients are passionate as well about you know what they do or about where our two businesses come together. Yeah. And in case it's not obvious from the fishing example, if it's something that you're passionate about, you're going to be uh, in the tribe. You're going to have the connections. You're going to know the people. You're going to understand the tropes and the lingo and all of the all of the. Th- you could just like an insider. It's like mm-hmm. an unfair advantage. You just like, you know exactly who to call and they're going to trust you already because they know you. So it it's it's just amazing the difference when I'm working with someone who, this is what always happens. Somebody's like, somebody's like, okay, okay, okay. I know I need to I pick a niche, pick a niche, right? So the, which one should I pick? And they immediately start thinking that from the out, they're going to pick one where the biggest financial opportunity exists. They imagine from the outside that, you know, like certain people are rich or certain industries are rich. So they're going to go after that. Mm -hmm. How should I get in touch with them? I'm like, if you don't know how to get in touch with them already, don't pick that one. (laughs) Pick a different one. Pick your church, the church that you go to or the karate school that you go to, you know, like that industry. Cause you know, you know, like, like you're will immediately be recognized as someone trustworthy because you're one of us. Yes. We'll use some heart in the in the decision making process because it's easy to go. Okay, here's where the money is. My heart is over here. Well, how about we use both? Let's apply heart to people that have the ability to pay for what you're going to produce. Uh, well, so uh, yes, I agree with that. I think there's an even broader way to look at it. Well, a longer term way to look at it is uh, if the thing that you currently want to produce is too expensive for that group, then find something that's less expensive to produce and produce that. Well, your business model you create a business model yeah right but if we start with value like we talked about earlier if you start with value and you find people you like you're one of them you want to help them and they want something maybe they can't afford to pay you 150 dollars an hour to build filemaker databases but if they want something and you're you're a clever person you can probably find a way you know to satisfy that desire at a, at a price point that is attractive to both people. Does that mean you might have to change jobs or your identity or skilling up or uh, hire people or just do something dramatic? Yeah, maybe, but, and, and maybe you don't want to do that right now or maybe ever, but that is the, the broadest possible way to look at it is if you find a group of people who you like and you want to help them get what they want and you're going to help them get what they want, then everything flows backwards from there potentially. Like in an idealistic, I'm talking, speaking idealistically, idealistically, right. everything would flow backwards from that. Yeah, it's, it's niching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, and it's, it, it's where, I like to think of it as where everything comes together, where your talents and passions and the value that you can deliver to, to a very specific targeted audience and their... Uh, shall I say wants, um, <laughs> and, and their wants, I was going to say wants and needs, come together. That's, I mean, that's what you want. And the audience has to be big enough, but it still has to be niche down. It's got to be specific. Here's one, one more on this one. In Ditching Hourly Lives, so the workshop I do, I have an example of, it's just a list, of course, this is from the before times, it's a list of conferences in Vegas. And I sorted it by... Uh, from like smallest audience to largest. And there's this like comical, like the, the names of some of these groups are like comically small, like um, like fire, uh, like emergency fire chiefs of Northern Nevada. <laughs> 7,000 <laughs> okay. people. I remember giving a talk in Vegas 
uh, and before the talk, it was going to be about pigeonholing yourself. And I was like, raise your hand if you think you know how many dentists there are walking distance from this conference hall. And, you know, a couple of hands go up. It was like it was like a thousand dentists within walking distance of the conference. Wow. The world is so much bigger than you think. So it's almost I, I can think of only one example where someone came to me with a niche that was too small to support uh, what they wanted to do. It was just like the, the stuff they wanted to sell. It just wasn't going to be a big enough market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. also the other problem with the, the, their market was it was an incredibly competitive market. It was extremely small and extremely competitive and cutthroat. So it was highly likely that they wouldn't like client number two would not work with this guy because he worked with client number one. So yeah. so I was like, OK, that's but I'm talking about like like there's maybe only 100 or 200 people in this target market. It was really small. But anyway, um, it the in general, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other times people have been like, oh, I want to, I want to, you know, I'm really into BMX and I do marketing. I'd love to do marketing for BMX, but they don't have any money. There's not enough of them. And within 15 minutes, I was like, here are 300 brands that you could go reach out to. And I can see that they're spending at least a thousand dollars a month on banner ads on this website. So I think there's enough money and I think there are enough (laughs) clients Yeah. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that leads us into the next point, right? Mm-hmm. Which in the way Adam describes it is, is passion is a story. And I mean, Adam is such a storyteller, um, but, but I don't care. Even though he's a storyteller, he's still right. Passion is a story. It's, and if you think about the book as an example of that, when you look at the book, you know, usually these kinds of books are organized by, you know, he's got these, you know, rules for thriving in this new passion economy. It would be organized by the rules, right? One, two, three, four. No, he does it by stories, which is actually how we remember his points anyway. I mean, as we've been talking about this, we said, oh yeah, remember the brush story? Remember the Amish? I mean, we haven't talked about the wine marketing company yet or the accountant, but you know, we, the, when Jonathan and I talk about that, there's a shorthand immediately. Yeah. Hard we potatoes. both know what we're talking about. <laughs> Say again. The hard potatoes in the Amish story, like I'll never forget. Like they hit yeah. a rock on the ground and throw the, throw the, the driver flying. <laughs> hard potato. <laughs> but, I, you know, humans are hardwired to learn by story and we remember it so much better than a list of rules. So or, much stickier. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, we were talking about naming this episode, Passion is a Story. And of course, you know, we're three quarters of the way through before we hit on it. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I love to, I love to hear stories. I mean, it's one of the things that really bonded me to, to Adam personally, but to the book first, because the book was my first experience with Adam, is that he told these stories in exactly the right way. And by that, I mean that it matches his style of delivery. Like if you talk to him, it's kind of the same as reading the story in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and second, and then this is, I don't know if this is unique to me or a bunch of, of others, but I like that the stories were like exactly the right balance where they were deeply researched, but he didn't give us all of the ins and outs of all of the research. He gave us you know, not, not the top line. He gave us more than the top line because it was intriguing and we got into it. But he did it in such a clean, pure, um, connective, sticky way mm-hmm. that, that you can't 
Uh, you can't not remember it. Do I say that? Right. Is that the right number of double negatives? <laughs> yeah, you can't not remember it. They, you can't they not stick. forget it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a master storyteller. He's been a journalist for years. So um, it, that's worth pointing out because I, you do see a lot of people who do this really the, the really wrong way. So like if you imagine if you imagine just the worst kind of bad marketers who who are it's the whole air quotes story is just about themselves and it's all a tease that they just they never quite get to the point and then finally in the last chapter there's this big reveal on you know the three things that were secrets to my success and if you click mm-hmm. here for 9997 you can buy the answer in this video and I do get people plenty of times who are like, there's just a, a type of person who wants you to get to the point. And there's another type of person who just thoroughly enjoys the, the journey to the point. And I, I think it's just, it's just a mix. You're not going to please everybody. But I do think that there needs to be some, I think just dry data is not what people need. I mm-hmm. think, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't. It's not what they want. It doesn't produce action. <laughs> It's not what they want. <laughs> no, I, I meant it in the annoying, arrogant way. It's not what they need. I couldn't um, resist. Yeah, it's hard to not interchange those words. But anyway, the the um, certain people, it just won't be effective. The, just data does is not effective at, at generating action. So there needs to be some kind of story to it, and whether that is uh, just a really visual metaphor. That's my preferred because metaphors are yeah, so short. Yeah, that works that's, really well. That's my preferred. Um, there's a book. There's a guy I've interviewed a few times. It's John Warlow. I'm not sure if we've had him on this show, but he's been on Ditching Hourly no. a couple times. He wrote a book called Built to Sell, which is a really good book, especially for designers about how to productize your services and create, you know, and generate real profits for your business. And it's a uh, what? What is it? I don't know if it's an allegory or a parable. I always forget which one's which. But it's a uh, it's a fictional story but it's you know it's instead of him writing a business book like first do this then do that then do the other he he takes the format of like uh you know sort of an obi-wan and a luke skywalker Uh, where he's got a a, a successful business person and a sort of struggling business person and they have this kind of mentorship relationship and and sort of socratically works through the struggles of the younger person and it is like and you, I can imagine people being annoyed with it. Just get to the point. Tell me what to do, and let's get this over with. Um, but that book just really sticks with me. It's very visual, and I recommend mm-hmm. it all the time. And I think, I think there is some balance between. I, I know there is a balance between just presenting findings or research or whatever, and and converting that into a format that's visual and has a narrative that is what actually produces. It makes it memorable and sticky and produces action. You just have, I think you have to do it. Yeah. You know who did that really well, even though he's kind of not doing so well these days, is Robert Kiyosaki with uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Oh, I've been, many people have recommended that book, but I've never read it. Yeah. I mean, what he does is he takes this idea of, it's really about mindset, about Mm. your money mindset. And, but he does it with his real dad, who was the poor dad and the rich dad, which was like, I think his best friend's father. Mm. And as he goes through different things, he would say, you know, I'm paraphrasing, my rich dad said this and my poor dad showed me this. 
and basically he, you know, at the end, it kind of pulls it all together into his own personal philosophy. But I think that's one of the reasons why it's so memorable is mm-hmm. it's, you know, he's reduced it to archetypes, rich and poor. Mm-hmm. And it's dad. So it's something people relate to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, family member. So it's, yeah, there, there are way, a lot of different ways to do it, um, especially in books. But even, you know, just emails. It's when you can show people what you mean versus just telling them, it's hugely powerful. Right. Yep. A little bit of like walking them down the path. Like, so, so like walk in my shoes a little bit. Like one story I tell all the time is how I, the, the epiphany, like what led to the epiphany that hourly billing was causing the problems at my firm. And it, it just like, because I walk you into a situation that starts where a lot of people currently are. And I walk them into a scenario that they haven't hit yet, but they can imagine. And then it's like, oh my God, what would I do? And then, you know, like, you know, how, how can we fire our best guy? That doesn't make, it's like, you you know, it's the wrong move, but you're, the dollars are telling you that's the move. And you're like, yeah. oh, but why is, I know this is wrong, but I don't know why. <laughs> I certainly <laughs> don't know how to fix it. So it, it walks them from where they are into a conundrum or a dilemma and then resolves it. And pe- like, I know that story, people will gasp. Like when I tell that story, it's like, oh my God. So there's something I could just, I could have just jumped to the, you know, I often do kind of jump to the chase. Now it's like, start with value, then set your prices, then figure out your costs. Done. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it doesn't, no one's going to change based on just that. They need to, they need to be kind of like, not led into it, but like welcomed into the story. Well, it's it's a journey. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think of that, you know, because we all have people on our mailing list who've been there for, you know, an hour. And then we have people who've been there for five days, maybe five years. So they're each in different stages of the journey. And what we have to do is appeal to um, to where they are. You know, we're meeting them where they are in different ways. And, and it's, you know, most of, of us, what we do isn't all that complicated, really. Right. Mm-hmm. We have, we have a set of beliefs and we have, um, you know, a set of core beliefs, your, you know, your point of view and you're imparting them to people in as many different ways as you can think of so that they, they get what you're trying to say and they stick with you or they go, no, that's, that doesn't jive with my worldview and they drop out. Mm. Yeah. It's a journey. Right. Yeah. And, and a filtering process. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, is that we, you know, we find our voice, it, you know, when we start, like I look back at stuff I wrote in 2009, I'm like, really? That seems kind of stupid now. You know, yeah. I look at it and go, you know, I wouldn't write that now, but it was fine then. I was starting, I was working out how to think about things and people read it and, you know, some people liked it. Um, and right. so, yeah. And that's, that's what you have to start where you are and then just keep you know, telling those stories, whether it's a simple um, metaphor or whether it's a more complex story or it's your origin story. Like in your case, how you came to decide hourly billing is nuts for somebody else. It's how they decided to um, to, to start the business. What was that light bulb moment? Yep. It's it's capturing those things. Quit the day job, all that stuff. Yeah. 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 It's huge. Cool. Well, where are we? We're, it seems like we could talk about think, this all day. I think we've got one left. Okay. Um, 
which is, and these are just the ones we chose out of the book. These are not all of them. Um, never be in the commodity business, oh. even if you sell what other people consider a commodity. This is great. It's also really nuanced. Yeah. Oof. So I think it's the example in the book, but it's hard to tell because it could have been an example on his podcast. But he talks about Starbucks selling coffee beans, right? Starbucks is mm-hmm. not selling coffee beans. They're Mm-mm. not selling. They're not selling. You know, the juice <laughs> of coffee beans. You know, if that's all you wanted, you can go to Dunkin' and get it for whatever ninety-five cents or whatever it is, or you can go get it cheap somewhere uh, at a Stuckey's. But that's not what people are buying when they go to Starbucks. But how did that happen? They're they're buying an experience. So Starbucks created. I think they call it a third room. You know, you've got home, you've got work, and you've got this sort of Starbucks space where you're going to go in, you're going to feel a particular way when you go into this space. Mm-hmm. They're going to, it's got its own language. It's it almost kind of reminds me of like a, a Priya Parker concept where they create their own language. It's got its own rules. Uh, there are certain kind of expectations. You're entering a different world in a small sense. Mm-hmm. And and in that small world, coffee's five bucks, <laughs> yeah, right. which is ten times more than you probably than than any coffee at, when Starbucks launched. It's ten times more than you would have paid for uh, coffee anywhere else. And yet, there's a, a Starbucks now uh, pretty much every corner. So that's you know, if you if you are aware, God, it's this is I. But, trying to think of a way to describe this to someone who doesn't already see it, because it's one of those things that is obvious in retrospect, but hard to see until the light bulb goes well, on. Let's let's try this. And I, I, I don't know if you'll like this or not, but let's do it. So I think of uh, software developers or not the people, but the service mm-hmm. as a commodity for me, oh, yeah. because I don't under, I don't can't see a difference between one or the other if they're mm-hmm. not marketing something specific. So I would look at somebody who goes, you know, I can do this Rails app for you for you know one hundred and fifty dollars an hour. One, I don't know what a Rails app is. I don't know what it does for me. I don't know what one hundred and fifty dollars means because an hour means because I don't know how long it will take to build. So yep. it, that's a commodity yep. to me. But somebody says, well, I work with consultants and I help them to do, you know, X, Y, Z on their websites. I'm like, oh, and how do you do that? And so and then I what I find by looking at their site is they really understand the problems that consultants face Mm -hmm. and they speak the language. That's not a commodity. That's a person I want to talk to. Right. To me, that's the difference in our space. Right. So the the technical definition of commodity, I'm going to sort of paraphrase it, is that it's a a good or could be a product or a service at at this stage of the game that has high fungibility. And what that means is that the buyers see no meaningful difference buying this good or product or service from supplier A or supplier B. There's just no difference. So like a, a typical kind of commodity would be like sugar or wheat or corn where it's like, look, it's corn. Like, I don't care if it was grown here or there or wherever. We just need corn or corn to, to make syrup, you know? Mm-hmm. So the so then what are, what's the meaning? What's the only last remaining meaningful difference between corn from supplier A or corn from supplier B? Uh, the price. price. So if you have, if you produce corn, then the, the uh, escape route here is to sell something else you're still using the corn to create it but you want to sell uh 
something meaningful to a group of people. And it's probably going to be a niche group. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to find something meaningful across. Like you can't find something meaning, meaningful across the mass market. It's too, it's too um, divergent. But if you pick a, a specific group of people who have a specific kind of uh, problem or they want something and you can satisfy that desire with corn, then sell that. Sell, sell the satisfaction mm -hmm. of the desire, the resolution of the tension. And that you do it with corn is incidental. Yeah, it's, it's the experience. Yeah, it's, that's another way of looking at it too. It's like, because you, you'll see people, at, you know, I have a, a, a member of the family, extended in my extended family, who is in a commodity business. I, uh, it's something to do with trains. It's like steel for trains or something like that. I can't even remember. Oh, it's, I think it's iron ore that uh, gets yeah, made into train tracks. Yeah, 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 big time. So they, you know, so they're always pushing to go from the good level, the goods level, to the. Uh, sorry, they're they're in the commodity level. That you want to move it up to goods. So goods would be like instead of selling the iron ore, they would sell the the train tracks made. So you can buy train tracks from us, and then they're gonna. This is a total Joe Pine experience economy. So if they, so then, okay, a lot of people are selling train tracks. So now the good is becoming commoditized. The good is, is no, there's no difference, but buying from brand A or brand B, then what do they do? They start selling services like uh, Microsoft did this. IBM did this. They sold what became a commodity. So then they promoted, they, they tried to make that pivot into services. Mm -hmm. And if your service is a commodity, what, where's your pivot? to the experience level. If your experience is a commodity, where's the pivot? It's to the, the transformational level. So there's your map. So whatever the thing is that you sell that is commodity commoditized, and I agree with you, Rochelle, that that people who sell themselves as a software developer, pair of hands, I can I, I build Rails apps, totally commoditized. Very easy to search for Rails developer uh, and then get a billion results and sort by price and pick the second cheapest one. So what do you do? You pivot up to the experience economy. What's the experience of working with this person? What's going to be the outcome for my business? You know, that you do it with Rails is incidental. Yeah, I don't care about that. Yeah, right. It could be Node. It could be .NET. Who cares? Yeah, I don't care. I care about the outcome. And mm -hmm. yeah, and the outcome is, you know, is it going to work? How is it going to work? What do I have to do to maintain it? How are you going to mm -hmm. help me going forward? You know, all those kinds of things. Right. Yeah, that's another great one. So like uh, this... This makes a lot of software developers shudder, but would you be able to charge more for a software project if you uh, guarantee, uh, gave a 12 month bug free guarantee so that, you know, if you, so you could say to your buyer, the buyer says, geez, you're like twice as expensive as the next people that we talk to. And you would say, you know, you could say a bunch of things, but the one I'm talking about here is a guarantee. You say, well, will they guarantee their work? Will they guarantee it for 12 months? If anything breaks at all, just let us know and we'll fix it for free. I love answer. that. Yeah, of course yeah, you would. Yeah, a buyer, of course. Right. It's, yeah. like, it's like a car warranty. It's like you stand behind the quality of the thing the thing that you produced. Do you or mm -hmm. don't you? Mm -hmm. If you don't, well, <laughs> what does that say? <laughs> if you do, then you're going to be able to command a premium because people, good clients who fear the risk of their, you know, whatever their web application going down is, are going to want to be able to... to um, reach out to someone, not be stuck high and dry with their website down. And if you, and, and if you go into a, a build project like that, you're going to build a, a site that you know you have to fix for free for 12 months if anything breaks. Do you think that would affect the way that you built it? Probably <laughs> yes. You will probably comment the hell out of that code. 
You'll probably write it in an extremely clear way, very understandable, not a lot of hacking and slashing. It's going to change the way you build it because if you know you have to support it for free. So well, it's better for thing, everyone. Yeah. And the other thing when you have that conversation is you get rid of the price buyers mm-hmm. right away. Because if somebody... Mm-hmm. Uh, a price buyer might not even come back to you and say, well, you're twice as much as somebody else. Why right. a true right. price buyer? They'll probably just go away. Mm-hmm. But when you have that conversation, you start converting clients into your worldview, into yep. your point of view and, and how you provide value. It's hugely powerful. And it's powerful to you. Like the first time you have those kinds of conversations, you're probably like shaking in your boots. Mm-hmm. And then you have the conversation and you walk out going, well... Okay, I can yeah. do this. <laughs> yeah, you feel some actual power at the negotiating table yeah. instead of just instead of having instead of it being a beauty contest. Where tell us why we should pick you instead of someone else. It's like, <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the pitching thing that Blair Enns always talks about. It's like don't pitch. Well, his his thing is slightly different because ad agencies have this idea that they have to solve the problem before they get the work because it's traditionally how it's done. So you go in with a pitch, you spend thousands and thousands of dollars, hard hard money on your pitches, and then the client says, "No, I don't choose you, but you've done you've done all the work already." <laughs> it's the most bizarre backwards thing. Do not copy the ad industry and how exactly. they get their work. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well. well Yes, so I think uh, we're we're going long. So so thanks yeah, for sticking I, with us. I hope we've done Adam Adam just Adam's book and Adam himself justice. But absolutely read the book. There's uh-huh. so many. I mean, the stories alone will stick with you forever. I just I and there's a, a few stories in there specifically towards authority style businesses like whether it's Megan or Megan Phillips and her wine marketing consulting company and Jason uh, Bloomer, who's an accountant, a CPA. Uh, Those are great stories. I mean, it's worth the price of the book alone just for those two stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you want a sample, check out his podcast because it's very similar. Uh, It's more, you know, obviously it's more of an interview style. So the the book isn't like that. The book is just him talking, but um, definitely check it out. It's, it's, if you, if you, or, you know, have this kind of worldview, if you subscribe to this worldview that we're uh, talking about here, uh, he definitely gets it. He's one of the, he's one of the people who gets it and it just does a great job telling stories that support it and hopefully, hopefully will cause people to take action. That's the big thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's written to do it. Cool. All right, everybody. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time in 2021. Yay! Yay! <laughs> so for ready for 2021. <laughs> yeah, big time. All right, folks. See you on the other side. Bye. Bye-bye.